Welcome to Closer to the Phenotype, a podcast where scientists discuss and debate new discoveries in published research with a focus on the use of metabolomics to drive multiomics forward. Each episode, we'll discuss a recent publication and dive into the research with a scientific expert or two. I'm your host, Bobby Wiggs. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Bill LeFew and Dr. David Foster, and we're going to discuss deep neural networks for classification of LCMS spectral peaks. This is a 2019 article from Analytical Chemistry. So I'm going to start with Bill. Bill, how about you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Bill LeFew. I'm the Director of Data Science at Metabolon. I've been with the company just over three years now. Anniversary was actually May 15th. Uh, and my group has worked a great deal with the same sort of data that this paper is concerned with and uses machine learning as a tool to interrogate, analyze, and uh, benefit from the sorts of insights that this group is also uh, talking about. So I'm looking forward to discussing this paper today with you all. And David, how about you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm uh, David Foster. I'm the Vice President of Data and Informatics at uh, Metabolon. I've uh, been with the company coming up on four years now. Uh, and so all of the software development and uh, data science work that we do um, to enable our uh, data generation capabilities and data interpretation uh, run through my team. And so, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've obviously been working closely with Bill on uh, exactly these sorts of problems. Cool. So, Bill, would you, uh, would you tell us about the paper and what the paper's about? Yeah, the paper is a, is a wonderfully insightful work about uh, how machine learning might be applied to deal with one of the fundamental challenges of LCMS data interrogation, which is the fact that uh, there are many, many, many more features. Uh, and where features here, I mean a, a signal, uh, which actually is registered by the instrument, than are uh, legitimate pieces of data that are present, that is presence of compounds that one might actually want to uh, gain biological insight from. And so this group's hypothesis was that uh, we might leverage uh, neural nets and even a, a simpler methodology to uh, look at these data and see if we could separate kind of junk peak from actual real honest-to-God compound information. And uh, the approach they took here was to think of this as a, um, a problem of image recognition, where the image in this case is the shape of the peak, and uh, one might differentiate those junk data from peaks that are actually showing the presence of compounds themselves. So, David, uh, why don't you tell us your thoughts on the paper? Sure. Uh, you know, I thought the paper was uh, was really um, was really interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I think that the uh, you know looking at this as an image recognition problem is really interesting because um, that's really what a lot of people do to try to to try to solve these problems. They actually look at the the peaks. So, you know, to some extent. Uh, it's a, you know, it, it is a visual recognition problem and maybe, you know, some of the challenges that have come up when you try to turn whatever people are doing when they, you know, are fairly consistently able to identify or distinguish between noise and not noise peaks, um, you know, the challenges that you have when you try to turn that into some simple metrics that you might use to do that, you know, maybe that could be overcome with some of the more nuanced uh, kinds of things that can be learned uh, by a by a neural network. Um, at the same time, I think they also, you know, encountered a lot of the same problems that we run into in this kind of work where, you know, uh, I mean, first of all, this is only one part of a whole pipeline. So, you know, they talk a lot about different methods of, of actually, you know, identifying peaks sort of, uh, to, you know, before you do the filtering, um, you know, so all of those sort of choices that you make throughout the entire spectrum 
in terms of your um, data analysis pipeline, but also in how you, you know, differences in how you uh, actually run your run your samples on the on the instrument. You know, like uh, like that whole pipeline is really important for empowering this kind of uh, or for, for doing this kind of work. And so, you know, uh, like I thought they had a really thoughtful perspective on you know how this solution to this one narrow problem interacts with all of those other elements. Uh, sort of surrounding it and the, you know, related challenges. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think it was also interesting because the results they found were were pretty interesting. Although you know, for all the reasons that I just said, I think uh, it's sort of, and I mean, they would, I think, be, uh, be very, uh, very much willing to say that this was more of a proof of concept than a, uh, you know, a, a drop-in solution for anyone's data analysis pipeline because there are all of these, uh, all of these challenges related to, generalizing this and making it fit into uh, into whatever your workflow uh, with all of the other choices you might make. So um, yeah, I thought it was a, I thought it was a really interesting application of this you know powerful um, methodology uh, that tackled a lot of the the challenges that you know, we obviously know uh, all too well from working with this data ourselves. Yeah, I, just, I think one of the things that David brings up is, is really interesting in that, uh, when applying machine learning in general to things like this, um, it, it just it doesn't always need to work. Uh, they this group had the hypothesis, and uh, and it didn't need to be right. It didn't need to work. You can uh, do all the right machine learning, all the right applications, and uh, if the relationship isn't present, then you just won't see promising results. In this case, they they uh, they were lucky in that they they did, uh, but they used good methodologies. They were very thoughtful in how they approached it. And, uh, and much like how we work with our data, uh, they benefited strongly from um, uh, instruments that produced consistent, usable, uh, well-refined data from which insights could hope to be derived. And, uh, and without all of the, those uh, advantages, the backbone of work all the way from sample prep to uh, instrument calibration to maintenance to quality controls, uh, uh, even the best uh, hypotheses driven with machine learning technologies uh, are are sorely tested to produce useful results, um, and so uh, I thought what they did here. Uh, I certainly appreciate the work that goes in before you ever get to the machine learning hypothesis. Now, can we talk a little bit about their their challenges? When I read the paper, I saw they went through the deep neural network, but then they also did, you know, regression. So when they went into this. They, they found that they had a sort of high false discovery rate, false peak detection. Uh, do you think that's a, a product of the, the neural network? Is it just one of those things you can't understand and, and because of the nature of neural networks? Uh, do you guys want to talk a little bit more about that? Well, so I think um, a couple of things there. Uh, you know, we obviously solve a lot of these problems in a slightly different way, you know, with our whole sort of chemocentric approach. Um, part of the point of their uh, approach here in trying to denoise the data is that you know those um, those noise peaks are really a killer if you're going to just try to take all of the peaks from your data and then do statistical analysis because it it just smashes your false your um, the the necessary statistical uh, correction you know so you don't have a whole bunch of false discoveries um, and so if you can have a have a programmatic approach at the front end to like knock out a bunch of those uh, noise peaks that right might really help your um, help your ability to do statistical analysis down the line. Now we solve 
that problem. Obviously, with all the methods that we've developed uh, related to matching um, matching uh, spectra up against our library of um, of known uh, standards and sort of that whole chemo centric workflow um, solves a lot of these kind of problems uh, just in a slightly different way. Uh, now, I mean, this is still an interesting thing for us to consider for a lot of the sort of discovery or, uh, you know, investigative work that we still do. I think, you know, these kind of method, the, the method they, they uh, described here could be very useful for us um, to, to, you know, also consider for sure. Uh, but I just wanted to sort of distinguish that, like, are you doing this based on uh, just looking at the peaks and then looking for statistical significance and then trying to figure out what those things might be, which is sort of the standard uh, workflow? Uh, or are you, you know, or I guess what I, I should say, what you do if you don't have the luxury of a giant library of uh, of of refined standards to have run across your platform? And then what we do with our sort of chemocentric uh, workflow uh, which, uh, which, uh, like I said, addresses a lot of these, a lot of these issues. Um, so I think there's that, that distinction that I would draw. Um, and then, you know, with respect to what they were seeing, you know, uh, like the, the sort of huge number of, um, of peaks that they saw that then they were able to re remove, uh, with this, uh, with the method that they described, you know, I think that was that's really the success of the of the paper is showing that you know you can um, not be as stringent in your peak uh, finding algorithm. You can use the less stringent um, uh, methodology, uh, and then you know use this kind of filtering that they developed to remove a bunch of the noise peaks and still keep the sort of higher capture of uh, of true positive uh, peaks. Um, it, you know, in that, in, in the workflow. So, I mean, I think that's sort of the, that's what they were really able to show that they could do, um, in this, uh, in this paper. Yeah. The whole, the whole time I read the paper, I was thinking, how does this apply in a chemocentric approach? Because I know we're not feeding all the peaks directly in, uh, because we do have that step where we, we match against our library. Um, Bill, do you have any thoughts on that too? Uh, David, I appreciate that. Cause I was thinking about that a lot. Yeah, well, there, there, are, there are a couple of things here. I think that uh, the chemocentric approach can still be supported by approaches like this because uh, despite our best efforts, noise peaks and peaks that are not correlated with uh, compounds in our library can still wreak havoc on uh, predictive capabilities. Uh, and so I, I would expect that an approach like this um, might benefit us in some way, shape or form. Uh, I, I think we would continue to face the challenges that this group explicitly called out, which is uh, false positives. Um, you know, as as you all know, we work very, very hard to make sure that we detect what is there and only what is there, and we detect that thing every time it's there. Uh, and so we we really prefer not to miss anything if we can do anything at all about it. And so, uh, you know, this discover missing things and false discovery is 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 something that we fight very hard against. And uh, if we were in in an effort to cut out noise peaks, if you cut out true peaks, that would be uh, something of a non-starter. Uh, in many instances. Uh, you asked a question, Bobby, about the use of the logistic regression approach uh, related to the neural mm -hmm. nets. Uh, I think that's a, a really interesting call out just to put on the, the machine learning hat for a second, because uh, most folks would say that logistic regression is a, a lower end technique compared to uh, neural nets, but I think that's a matter of, of taste. And I would be any uh, machine learning expert worth their salt will want to uh, at least 
try a regression technique, whether it's you know linear regression, if you're looking for a regression type problem, or if you're doing classification logistic regression, it's fine, uh, in order to get a sense of what's going on in the system. In this case, the group uh, took a little bit of a different uh, approach, uh, though you know this is what they published on. Maybe they had some side projects before they got to the meat of things, where they uh, fully expressed their neural net system, got some insights from that, and then were able to generate features which they thought might drive their logistic regression. Uh, so that's that's another approach, uh, another way to gain insights from your system. Um, and I thought a nice thing to include in a paper and share with an audience, because it's one of those things that other experts skilled in the art could build upon and uh, and look to apply to their data and practice. So they, they literally coupled the two methods together. I think they... Essentially. Uh, my, my, my interpretation, and David, I'd be interested in your perspective here, is they use the insights that they gained from the neural nets uh, in order to drive some of their feature selection in the, uh, the logistic regression, uh, which is uh, you know a, a, very, a very nice way to go. Because then at the end, they have a model where they know exactly what's going into it, and they know kind of what they expect to see out of it, and have a little less of a black boxy feel to, uh, to what's going on. Uh, that said, their initial um, uh, interpretation of the problem, that is a uh, machine learning problem using neural nets centered on uh, image recognition, does have a bunch of ways to interrogate the layers of a neural net and see what's actually kind of going on in quotes within the structure. So it's not that much of a black box. One thing I would have liked to have seen in the paper uh, is, is a little more uh, into what the layers were producing, those actual peak shapes that would have been interesting to, to call out that the neural net was learning uh, characterized either the, uh, the spurious peaks or the true uh, features. Yeah, I think that would also be a really interesting, uh, you know, thing to look into, and and might point the way towards some of, uh, towards addressing some of the problems that they called out, which I mean are things that you know we know are very very hard problems in this space uh, to deal with, like um, you know the things that aren't handled particularly well, uh, peak splitting when it sort of, especially when it happens towards the edge of your window, uh, shoulder peaks, double peaks, you know. Uh, high background uh, where you don't have very good single signal to noise. You know, I, I mean, handling isobars is a giant pain, um, you know, and, and especially with some of like a lot more data, um, it would be very interesting to see if you could, um, you know, adapt or sort of craft your uh, approaches a little bit uh, to, to try to handle some of those cases which, yeah, I mean, you know, those are always the things that cause problems, no matter what, no matter how you wrap up the machine learning problem, like, those are the places where I think uh, the challenge really is that, like, the, the data is pretty inconclusive. And so it's like, it's hard to train a model to learn what's right when it's like, well, that's, you know, the noise and the data are awfully are awfully confounding like it, you know it, it's just those are toughies um but i think it would be really interesting if you could throw you know not a couple of hundred samples at this but you know thousands and thousands of samples and really delve in there um you know there, there might be some really interesting stuff you could get there but yeah it would be fascinating to know whether their method was dominantly learning like exclusion criteria or inclusion inclusion criteria or what the mix was, how that was doing that, like that would be something really uh, the, that I would find very interesting to see. Very cool. As a reminder, you're listening to Closer to the Phenotype. I'm your host, Bobby Wiggs, and today I'm joined by David Foster and Bill LaFue. Can you talk a little bit more about 
some of the limitations of neural networks. So, you know, I, you talk you talk a little bit about the black box, and they sort of allude to the fact that you don't know why it works, right? You, you're not really sure exactly why it worked. And can you talk a little bit more about that and some of the limitations of neural networks in this space? Well, so, I mean, I think that's a challenge for this kind of approach um, is that, you know, especially when you start wanting to use this data for, um, for workflows where it's not just discovery and you, you know, really need to make sure that you're right. Um, you know, you kind of want to know why a peak was thrown out or why it was included. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking about things like clinical applications or whatever. Um, and, you know, I, that is the now. I mean, I also think there's an important thing to say whenever you're looking at this kind of thing, which is like right now, humans look at it with their eyeballs and say, yep, or nope, in a lot of cases. And so, you know, if all you're talking about is replacing that process, I think it's very reasonable to set your expectations at like they do it better and more consistently than a human, which is a high bar, but is not a absolutely must understand exactly what is going on bar because like I mean, you know humans are an inherently uh, error prone process which is something that they call out um, very clearly in the paper uh, but I mean you know I think despite all of these sort of tools that are out there for figuring out exactly what different uh, filters might be doing and trying to get a sort of sense for for what's going on in a neural network it it is fundamentally um, pretty hard to figure out exactly why uh, a, a network might be making some kind of an error or, or even getting something right, but for, you know, reasons that you, you completely don't understand, um, which has, you know, depending on what you're doing with the, with the, um, with these tools, uh, that, that can be a very important, uh, question. Excellent. Bill, David talked about, you know, the use of large data sets. And I know one of the benefits that you've had at Metabolon is that we have, something like 20 years of data and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of samples on which to train, which have been truth. Um, what has been your experience with that and, and sort of the, the value of that large data set and, and our approaches and what we've sort of looked at and used? Yeah, uh, certainly. Uh, again, e even with the large data set, which immediately provides advantage, uh, without the rigorous uh, maintenance, quality control, sample prep, all the things that surround how the data are produced, uh, the challenges of bringing insights from that data uh, can be insurmountable. So that's the, the real advantage is not just the, the pile of data that we have, it's the, um, the criteria in which those data were produced uh, and the constraints. And so that's, that's been a real advantage uh, in working with these, these data. Uh, the variety of data also uh, works to our advantage. Um, one of the, the challenges with immediately applying insights that were, for instance, generated from uh, this paper, for instance, I, if I went out to their repository and tried to uh, train a model or take their coefficients and apply it to every data set that came through Metabolon's door, uh, I would be surprised if um, it was immediately applicable to things like uh, feces or urine sample sets, as human plasma was the sample uh, type on which these um, coefficients and approaches were generated. Uh, and it's not clear to me, at least out of the gate, that uh, one would expect uh, peak shapes to be similar across different matrices. And the pile of data that we have at our disposal and the um, quality of those data allow us to really interrogate um, such questions with hopes of uh, spreading apart what is characteristic of a matrix, what is characteristic 
of an instrument, what is characteristic of a sample, and uh, and and get those information uh, in a in a robust uh, and extensible way. Well, and we certainly know that uh, amongst matrices, peak shapes vary. Having having lived with our data for a decade uh, in my previous role, uh, peak shapes vary, uh, retentions vary. Things get interesting as you sort of change matrices, right? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think not just, uh, you know, I, mean, I, I think there are big differences just in the um, chromatic graphic methods, right? Like, I mean, if you're like, the, you know, the data off the helix, which is what uh, I think I recall they used for, uh, mm -hmm. what they used for this uh, paper, like, you know, that just, that just behaves a slightly different way than, um, than some other kinds of uh, some other uh, chromatography. So, you know, uh, what I would be very interested in would also just be like how much you could actually transfer, you know, to Bill's point, how much does it work out of the box? Uh, you know, if you try to apply it in a different area, but then also like how much work would it be to fine tune it, uh, you know, to try to apply it to different areas? Would you really need to just, or are we really talking about like, you know, you need data to train a different model per matrix, per method, um, which doesn't mean that that would be useless. It would just be, that's a different, you know, it, it would be interesting to see how far you'd have to go down that kind of a, of a path. Yeah. And to David's point, uh, transfer learning is uh, a methodology in neural networks that has been received very well by the community and has shown substantial benefit. Uh, you know, in our case, we, we might take it and actually apply it to pretty huge sets of data and samples. Whereas uh, the, the code and coefficients shared by this lab, uh, could probably be leveraged by other folks with some pretty good benefit, even if they didn't have the the same sort of data repository that we have at our disposal. And just uh, a shout out to the group who wrote this paper again. Thanks very much for sharing all the code. I think that's just a wonderful way to push the the science and interrogation of these data forward. So great to be able to just ping through the paper into the GitHub repository and understand what the work is being done. You know, that's a, that's a big thing for us here on Closer to the Phenotype is we're, we're trying to drive science forward. And I really do appreciate groups that do this and uh, I appreciate that they are they're driving the science forward so nice shout out there Bill David why don't you tell me how you think the science will, will go forward coming off of this and also give me some final thoughts I, I thought like I said I thought it was really uh, really well thought out uh, sort of proof of concept for this kind of approach uh, you know I think it's something that we'll definitely be taking a look at um, ourselves and you know uh, I think it, it, it'll be fascinating to watch how this uh, how this develops going forward. Um, and you know, I, and I, I guess the last thing I would throw in is that I also thought it was it was good to see someone taking an approach to just like finding a defined sub part of the problem and really cracking that with a tool as opposed to I think there's been a pull to try to go to like right to sort of end to end kind of machine learning approaches and just be like, well, you know, why not just feed in the raw data and, you know, use machine learning to find stuff from the, you know, from the ground up. And I mean, um, I think the challenges that you have when even you've got a pretty well-defined part of the problem uh, that you run into uh, really sort of, you know, you would need truly unimaginable amounts of data to, um, you know, to really try to build some kind of like end-to-end uh, -end machine learning approach to attack this. So, I mean, I, I do think this is, this was very much right headed in that sense too, where it's like, let's find a sub part of the problem that, or a sub part of our pipeline that we really think can benefit from this methodology 
and you know let's uh, let's do some good work on that. Which yeah, I think that's exactly the right kind of approach. So I thought that was very well done. Bill, what are your final thoughts on the paper? Again, uh, great great work uh, from from this group. Love that they shared the uh, the repository of code uh, and so clearly laid out uh, both the the benefits and and the warts and challenges that are attached with such an effort. Uh, also, totally thrilled to read a paper that's seven pages long and gets to the point and shows the results because I think uh, as busy as we all are to try and integrate the newest methodologies and approaches and science into the work that we do, uh, I really appreciate them uh, them giving it in such a consumable, uh, learnable, uh, readily transferable way. So, um, David, Bill, I'd really like to thank you guys for coming on today. Uh, it's been a great discussion, and this is a great paper, and I hope that we'll have you back on because, you know, as we know, the the heart of what we do is big data, and data is, is really at the heart of everything that makes metabolomics possible, and what we do isn't possible without science like this and science like you guys are driving forward at Metabolon. So I'd like to thank you guys for coming on. Anytime, Bobby. Thanks, Bobby. That's it for this week's episode of Closer to the Phenotype, brought to you by Metabolon, where scientists discuss and debate recent publications while illuminating the future of multiomics research. If you love the show, please rate us on iTunes so that we can continue to deliver amazing episodes. You can also visit our website, metabolon.com, to subscribe and never miss an episode. While there, check out our other resources like ebooks and webinars that expand on some of our more than 2,000 publications. You can also follow us on social media at LinkedIn and Twitter. If you have an idea for the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at podcast at metabolon.com. That's M-E-T-A-B-O-L-O-N.com. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Bobby Wiggs, inviting you to tune in next time. And I'd like to extend a special thank you to, to Chad Crouch for Algorithms, the intro and outro music. <laughs>